0: Chapter Fifteen of the Egregious English by T. W. H. Crossland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fifteen Drink. Mr. Crossland has very kindly suggested that under the inspiring tutelage of the National Bard, Scotland has become one of the drunkenest nations in the world i shall not retaliate as one might do but shall content myself by referring the reader to the easily accessible tables of statistics which render it quite plain that scotland's drunkenness is very considerably exceeded by the drunkenness of england in london at any rate strong drink flows like a river there are five thousand three hundred licensed houses in the metropolitan area alone in kilburn a suburb of more or less irreproachable respectability there are twenty-five churches and chapels and thirty-five public-houses during late years public-house property has begun to be looked upon in the light of a gilt-edged investment turn where one will one finds the older inns are being swept away while on their sites are erected flaring gin palaces with plate-glass fronts elaborate mahogany fitments gorgeous saloon and private bars painted ceilings inlaid floors and electric lights throughout behind the bar instead of mine host of a former day and his wife and daughter there are half a dozen perked-up barmaids with rouged cheeks and a rossetti hair and a person called the manager who for two pounds a week runs the place for its proprietors a limited company which owns perhaps twenty or thirty other houses in the conduct of these mammoth drinking-places three great points are kept in view namely that a quick-drinking stand-up trade pays better than any amount of slow regular custom that the english drinker of the lower class cannot tell the difference between good drink and bad often preferring indeed the bad to the good and that as bad liquor is cheaper than good the sound commercial thing to do is to supply bad liquor with these admirable axioms continually before it the english trade has prospered amazingly more drink and worse drink is sold in England today than has ever been sold in England before. Through legislation intended to ensure sound liquor and the proper conduct of licensed houses, the proprietors have consistently made a point of driving the usual brewer's dray. In order to meet the Food and Drug Adulteration Act, all spirits sold at this establishment, while of the same excellent quality as heretofore, are diluted according to strength the same excellent quality as heretofore is choice and so is diluted according to strength as for the beer we dilute also the beer according to strength when we are caught at it it is a mistake on the part of the sellerman who has been discharged and the fine is so small in proportion to the profit on selling water that we smile at the back of our necks and keep on diluting according to strength our whole system, in fact, is designed to make people drink, and to make them drink the worst that we dare put before them. Now the Scot, drunkard or no drunkard, does have something of a taste in liquor. The best clarets have gone to Scotland, in spite of Mr Crossland, since claret became a dinner wine. You cannot put off a Scot with either bad whiskey or bad beer he knows what whisky should be and what beer should be and in scotland at any rate he never has any difficulty in getting them but the english taking them in the mass are quite the other way any sort of wine provided it be properly fortified and sophisticated passes with them for the real thing their scotch whisky is about the most wholesome thing they drink but large quantities of this are bought by english merchants in a crude state and rammed down the public throat without a thought to maturing blending and otherwise rendering the spirit potable english beer we have been told in song and story is the finest beer in the world yet nobody can visit an english brewery without discovering that english beer is not english beer at all glucose in the place of malt cassia and gentian in the place of hops finings in the place of storage are the universal order and so depraved and perverted has the fine old english taste in beer become that brewers who have set up to provide an honest article and sent it out to their customers have had it returned with the curt comment that nobody would drink such hogwash and what the customers want was beer and not brewers apron every now and again scares crop up in consequence of the use of improper ingredients there is an inquiry a royal commission and the englishman still goes on stolidly drinking arsenic will not drive him away from his favorite tipple neither will coculus indicus or any of the round-dozen abominations upon which the brewer's chemist makes his stand if there is one thing more than another that is considered the chief necessity of life in the english household of the poorer class it is beer and its sister beverage porter from morning till night the can is continually going between the house of the artisan and the neighbouring public the first thing in the morning the artisan himself must have a couple of goes of rum and milk by eleven o'clock he is ready for a pint of four half at noon when he knocks off for dinner he will imbibe a quarter more of the same beverage and at night after work he sits in the tap-room till closing time and drinks as much as ever he can pay for or chalk up meanwhile his wife must have her drop of porter in the morning her drop of bitter to dinner and her drop of something hot before going to bed also on saturday afternoons when the twain go marketing together they must have a few drinks just to show there is no ill feeling while on saturday night the artisan not infrequently improves the shining hours by getting blind to use his own elegant phrase thus it quite commonly happens that a third and even a half of the total income of a household of the artisan class is spent in alcohol thrift provision for a rainy day and for old age become an impossibility underfeeding usually walks hand in hand with over-drinking the man loses his nerve the woman her comeliness and her capacity and the end is pauperism and a pauper's grave if nothing worse among the english middle and upper classes there is distinctly a greater tendency to moderation than among the lower classes for all that the middle classes especially can point to a great many brilliant examples of the fine art of soaking publicans betting men commercial travellers proprietors of businesses solicitors clerks journalists and the like get through an amount of drinking in the course of a day which would probably appall even themselves if they kept an account of it let's have a drink is invariably one of the first phrases dropped when two englishmen meet we'll have another is sure to follow and so is hang it man we must have a final among the middle classes too as also among the upper classes there is a very great deal of secret drinking particularly among women and persons whose professional or official positions necessitate the maintenance of an appearance of extreme respectability The grocer's license and his fine stock of carefully selected wines and spirits offer a ready means of supply to the female dipsomaniac who would not be seen in a public house for worlds. Besides, gin can be charged as tea in a grocery account, and many a bottle of brandy has figured in such accounts under the innocent pseudonym of rolled ox-tongue though the english upper classes as i have said drink with a certain moderation their moderation really embraces a quantity of liquor which would send the artisan quite off its head whiskies and sodas at noon burgundy at lunch with cognac to one's coffee three kinds of wine at dinner followed by liqueurs and whisky make no appreciable mark on a man who is living at his ease and can sleep as long as he likes but the sum total of alcohol is quite considerable and probably greater than that consumed by the drunken sot for whom my lord has such contempt of english drinking generally one may remark that it is done in a very deliberate and unsociable way the english cannot be said to drink for company's sake they do not foregather and carry on their drinking merrily in their cups they are neither witty nor happy but just dull and dure and inclined to be quarrelsome they drink for drinking's sake for the sake of intoxication and to drown trouble i wish them good luck and less of their vile concoctions chapter sixteen food the subject of diet he prefers to call it diet is apparently one of unlimited interest to the englishman meet him where you will he is ever ready to discuss first the weather and then the things that is to say the kinds of food that agree with him indeed you could almost stake your life on extracting from any strange englishman you happen to come across some such statement as i can't abide eggs or veal always makes me bilious within ten minutes of opening up a conversation with him the englishman's house we are told is his castle and the englishman's hobby surely is his digestion in point of fact ninety-nine per cent of adolescent and adult english people suffer from chronic indigestion in a more or less severe form flatulence heartburn colic and liver are the englishman's mortal heritage he is invariably troubled with some of them and quite commonly with all If you relieved him of them, he would scarcely thank you, because he has nursed them from his youth up, and what he really wants is amelioration and not cure. Probably this is the reason why, in the midst of his wails and his unholy talk about diet, he continues to feed in precisely the grossest, greasiest, and least rational manner that generations of bad feeders have been able to develop of mornings if you sojourn with an english family you will be invited to breakfast at half-past eight promptly at that hour they serve a sort of sickly oatmeal soup compounded apparently of milk and sugar which they call porridge then follow thick and piping hot coffee with ham and eggs fish or a chop and bread and butter and marmalade as a sort of wind-up the man who tackles this menu goes to business belching like a torn balloon by eleven o'clock however he is ready for a little snack oysters and chablis prawns on toast a mouthful of bread and cheese and a bottle of bass or something of that kind then at half-past one there is lunch practically a dinner of several courses or a cut from the joint accompanied by what the english euphoniously term two veg at tea-time your englishman must needs lave himself in a dish of orange pico or bohea to the accompaniment of lumps of cake and at long and last comes dinner the crowning guzzle of the englishman's day and a function usually spread over a couple of hours it will be perceived that this gustatory programme or routine has been copied from the french the french put away two good meals per diem one at noon and the other in the evening and there is no reason why the english should not do the same when you come to think of it dinner in the middle of the day is a low underbred undistinguished arrangement also not to dine at night is to run the risk of not losing one's figure and of having the neighbours say that one cannot afford it the french programme would be all very well if it were carried out on french lines all through but it is not when you say soup in a french restaurant it means that you will be served with half a dozen tablespoonfuls of consomme or petit marmite or bisque as the case may be when the englishman says soup he means enough thick stock to wash a bust down what is more he gets it and swallows it and it is so all down the menu too much of everything and don't you think you can put me off with your blooming homeopathic portions a liberal table no stint, good food and plenty of it is one of the bulwarks of english respectability that bad digestion and talks about diet follow is nobody's fault this profusion this over-food as it were has been brought to its noblest expression by the english aristocracy whose tables literally groan with costly viands whose spits are always turning and whose scullions and kitchen wenches are as an army it is related that when a certain duke found it necessary to retrench and was advised by his family solicitor to get rid of his fifth sixth and seventh cooks his grace remarked but so and so a man must have biscuit the english middle class of course faithfully imitates to the best of its powers the english upper class and so on through the grades among all classes there is a rooted prejudice against food that happens to be cheap to this day people who eat escallop are rather looked down upon for no other reason than that oysters run you into half a crown a dozen while you can get excellent escallops at ninepence so the herring the whiting and other brands of cheap fish are considered little better than awful by persons who can afford to pay for sole and salmon turtle soup is infinitely to be preferred to any other soup in the world because it is dearer and champagne is drunk not because people like it but because it looks swagger and testifies to the possession of means these gustatory idiosyncrasies are purely english and obviously they are the offspring of the english love of display and superfluity among the lower classes the general feeding though cheaper is just as wasteful and just as gross excluding bread it consists chiefly of inferior cuts of butcher's meat with charcuterie and dried fish thrown in it has been complained against the scot that he is none too clean a feeder delighting hugely in inferior meats haggis is held forth as a great exemplar in point but it cannot be denied that throughout england the one kind of emporium for the sale of comestibles which flourishes and is unfailingly popular is the pork or ham and beef shop and here what do you obtain why exactly the meats which gentlemen of the type of mr henley describe as awful they include in addition to pork in and out of season pigs feet pigs heads pigs liver and kidneys pigs blood sausages the savoury duck or mess of seasoned remnants tripe boiled and raw and chitterlings so that the haggis of scotland is fairly well balanced i am not suggesting for a moment that the english display other than a proper judgment in devouring these dainties but if they will favour the pork-shop and its contents they can scarcely expect to be set down for an angel bread and manna-eating people perhaps the chief scandal about english feeding lies in the condition of the english hotels on the continent an hotel is an establishment for the accommodation of travellers requiring food and rest in england an hotel is an establishment for the accommodation of landlords and waiters high-class cuisine says the tariff card also wines and spirits of the best selected quality yet one's experience tells one that though the bill will be heavy neither the cuisine nor the wines will be more than passable much less high class a menu which is the same yesterday today, and forever bad cooking careless service and a general lack of finish are the things one may expect at an english hotel with the tolerable certainty of not being disappointed to complain is to draw forth the ill-disguised contempt of bibulous head-waiters and the stiff apologies of haughty proprietors but beyond that mortal man will never get because the english hotel is an immemorial and conservative institution and as wise in its own conceit as the ancient sphinx of late and in london attempts have been made to organize hotels adapted to the best kind of requirements so far as i am aware only two of them have really succeeded and the charges at both places are quite prohibitive closely identified one might almost say affiliated to the english hotel is the english railway buffet of which so much has been said in song and story the sheer horribleness of the refreshments here provided has passed into a proverb the english themselves admit that if you wish to know the worst about refreshments you should drink the railway buffet tea and partake of the railway buffet sandwich They also admit that for abominations in the way of aerated waters, milk, beer and whiskey, pastry, cakes, hard-boiled eggs, cold meats, boiled chicken and ham, and chops and steaks from the grill, the railway buffet takes the palm, and they admit further that the heaves who dispense these comestibles to the hungry and howling mob have the manners of duchesses yet the english without their railway buffets would be an utterly woebegone and miserable people put an englishman down at a strange railway station with a half-hour wait before him he has but one resort he inquires right off for the buffet and there he gorges and swizzles till the warning bell advises him of the departure of his train if there is no buffet he becomes a dejected pallid man and threatens to write to the newspapers so long as the railway buffets continue to exist the english digestion can never aspire to perfection even though english feeding and cooking outside railway stations become ideal for a single meal of railway buffet viands would permanently disorganize the digestive capabilities of the most ostrichy ostrich that ever walked on two legs. End of chapter sixteen.